So I'm entitling this message here, The Core Issue, and I'm using core here in two senses. This is what's called, in French, a double entendre. A double entendre. Oui, oui. Parlez-vous français? Uh, so a double entendre is something that has two intended meanings. So there's two meanings to core here, the core issue. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the core issue because I'll be talking about the most fundamental issue that, uh, that, that pertains to the Christian life, and that is learning how to live in Christ-like love, how to love the way Christ loved you. Um, it's, it's, it's the center of the center. But I'm, I'm going to be talking about core issues in another sense. The second meaning is that if we're going to love the way God calls us and empowers us to love, there's, there's, there's several things that we need to look at, and they pertain to the core issues, the core needs of our life. So this is the core issue that we're called to live in, live in love, and it has to address the core issues of our life. Uh, as we've done the last couple of weeks, we'll be preaching from, or teaching from, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. How many churches can you go to and you preach on the same verse for like five weeks straight? You know, this, this is what's unique about us. We like to dig into it. We get into it. So here's what it says. Maybe you haven't memorized by now. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because here's how he loves. Um, he, he, uh, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He loves like the rain falls. He loves like the sun shines. The Father loves indiscriminately, and that's how we're to love. And Jesus says, because if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than anyone else? Don't even the Gentiles do that? But you are called to be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we'll unpack that last verse uh, in, in, in a couple weeks from now. But be perfect. In terms of the character, in terms of love, in terms of how we love, love like the Father loves, that's what he's saying. So I'll do, I have two preliminary words I want to share, and then I'll have the two, I think I'll address the two core issues that we face as we aspire to love the way Jesus loved us. First of all, it's, it's, it's what makes this teaching so important, and this is a reminder, but it's an important reminder. What makes this teaching so important is that uh, this is, this command to, to, to love your enemies and to refrain from violence, it is, I think, the most important teaching in the Bible. It's, it's right at the top. I'll say more about that in a second. But it is also the area where the church has, let's be honest, failed the worst. The most important thing we have failed the worst at, at least historically speaking. Um, Paul says that you can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. 1 Corinthians 13, you can, you can speak in tongues and, and, and have a word of knowledge and prophecy and you can have, understand all mysteries and, and, and have all knowledge. You can parse every verb of the Bible in the original language and, and you can have faith that can move mountains and all that wonderful stuff. But if you don't have love, it's altogether worthless. Altogether worthless. It doesn't just lose value, it's worthless. So the only thing that gives any kingdom value to anything is, is love. And it's got to be done in love for the purpose of furthering love. And it, so if you're going to strike out on anything, don't let it be love. Get everything else wrong, but get this one right. Because if you don't get this one down, then there's nothing else worth getting down. To put it in, in, more starkly, if love's the most important thing, and it is, it's the all or nothing of the kingdom, well then, then, Failing to love should be considered the greatest heresy imaginable. The greatest heresy. 
Better to be off on the Trinity and off on the atonement and off on whatever than to be off on this. Because you can be absolutely orthodox, but if you're not orthodox for love, out of love, for the purpose of furthering love, your orthodoxy is worthless. So this is the number one priority. This is why our slogan is learning to love together. Because that is priority number one. That's our bullseye. That's the touchdown. Uh, Other things are important. We believe in correct doctrine and all the rest of that. But the number one thing that gives value to anything else that we do, and that is love. Learning how to love like this. So this message can't be more, you can't get a more important message than the message that we're having in this series here. That's why we're spending five weeks on it. It is that important. Second thing. It's really important that we don't see the Sermon on the Mount, or don't approach the Sermon on the Mount, as though Jesus was giving us here a handbook of ethics. Like, when you're struck on the cheek, make sure to turn to Matthew chapter 540 to find out what to do. And if someone wants to borrow something from you, turn to Matthew 542 to find out what to do. No, it, it's, it's not meant to be like that. Um, when someone breaks into your house and threatens you, well, hmm, what should you do? Look it up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, or whatever. Look, at when, when, when someone breaks into your house and threatens you or a loved one, you're not, no one is thinking about rules there. I mean, think about it. If someone breaks into your house and threatening you and your wife or your kids, and, and you say, oh, sir, can you hold on a second? I've got I, I to remember, what am I supposed to do if someone breaks into my house? I've got to look it up. Matthew chapter, what, what was that thing? No, it doesn't work like that. When someone threatens you and a loved one, you operate out of your character. Uh, your, your thinking part of your brain isn't going to be doing much. Uh, you go back, back to your amygdala, and what you do with your amygdala, that, that, that fight-or-flight reflex, will depend on the kind of character that you've cultivated. And you, you, we cultivate our character with every choice that we make. So, so if we're not intentionally pushing back on the violence that permeates our culture, and this myth of redemptive violence that I talked about two weeks ago that permeates our culture and that is on all of our shows and it just indoctrinates us. If we're not intentionally pushing against that to develop a kind of character that is enemy-loving and peace-embracing, well then when, when an emergency situation happens, God forbid, but if someone does break into your house and friends, you and a loved one, I can pretty much promise you that you'll respond the way the culture has indoctrinated you to respond. You'll be violent as much as possible, and if you can't do it physically, you'll at least be violent in your heart and mind. Um, we have to be cultivating a different kind of character. The only way we're going to respond uh, in emergency situations the way Jesus calls us to respond is if we're cultivating a Jesus kind of mindset and a Jesus kind of lifestyle and a Jesus kind of character day in and day out leading up to that emergency situation. Here's my concern. If you see this as a rule, Jesus' handbook on kingdom ethics, if this is a rule, love your enemies. This is what you're supposed to do. Well, then... We immediately, it can happen at least, that we start thinking about exceptions. Here's a rule. But is it a universal rule? Maybe it's a a general rule, but maybe there's some exceptions here. I mean, what if you're going to use violence to protect people? How could that be wrong? If if killing one person can save 50, how could Jesus not want you to do that? And and, and, and what about like like serving on the police and serving on the military? Uh, And, and, you know, certain situations, are there exceptions to this? And what is violence, you know? Uh, uh, well, if you, could, if you restrain someone, is that violent? If you tie them up, is that violent? If you just shoot them in the leg rather than shooting them in the head, is that still violence? Is that prohibited? I mean, what is violence? And who is your enemy? And there's a lot of things we can discuss, a lot of topics to cover. The minute you, the minute you approach any passage like a law, this is the law, well, it activates our inner lawyer. We start thinking like lawyers, and we're good at it. We're, what, what, what's the loophole? How... how, how how much can I get away without, without breaking this rule? 
I, I submit to you that's not the, 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 the best way to approach these passages. And then what can happen is, is, is uh, we, we, we debate these topics, and, 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 and we, the different interpretations gives rise to different factions. Because people, again, we, we kind of surround ourselves with the people who agree with us. Because we like it. We, we like to be congratulated on, 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 on the rightness of our beliefs. And, and, and so our confirmation bias gathers people around us who agree with us. And if things go the way they often do among humans, well, then that, that, that little club becomes, gets kind of self-righteous. We are the ones who, unlike those compromises over there, we are the people who believe that we, we, Jesus didn't make any exceptions here. Yeah, it sounds radical, but there are no exceptions. We're not like those compromisers over there. Meanwhile, those folks over there are saying, we're not like those crazy, unpatriotic fanatics over there. Because we know that Jesus wasn't talking to policemen or military units. He was talking to peasant Jews. He's talking about personal relationships. Not, 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 not those kind of things. And so, um, it's, it's, it, God knows that every nation needs a military, and God knows every nation needs a police force. Of course, of course, of course. Jesus wasn't ruling out anything like that. And so it goes. You get this self-righteous. And meanwhile, while we're feeling snug, smug about our beliefs, how right we are, it can be the case that no one notices, no one looks on the inside to notice the hundreds of ways we fail to love the people that are around us day in and day out. But we should have the right opinions on things. As we're striving to have the right opinion about how this applies to our vocation and how this applies to our lifestyle and are there exceptions, you completely overlook the fact that maybe you're taking your spouse for granted or your neighbor or your friend uh, for granted, you, you, you're not even seeing them. You're looking through them, and that's not loving them. You can become an expert on every facet of this passage. Know it inside and out. And it could be the case that all of that studying is simply a distraction. Helps you, distract you from the fact that in your heart of hearts, you, and maybe not even privately, maybe publicly, you, you loathe those stupid conservatives who, who you mindlessly follow things, or you can't stand those liberals who are destroying America, or what have you. All the while, but you're an expert on love. You're an expert. As you're studying to find still more arguments to refute your silly opponents, you're blissfully unaware of the gossip column that you run in your head as an autopilot all day long. It's a commentary, evaluating people, sizing people up, you know, proving and disapproving as though you're the judge of the universe, and you don't even notice it. But you're an expert on love. See, and with every judgmental thought you think, you're stealing some of their worth to apply it to yourself, which is the opposite of what love is. Love is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. Judgments is about ascribing worth to yourself at cost to another. And that's what you're doing with your gossip column. So approaching the Sermon on the Mount as a handbook of rules, I think it's, it's barking up the wrong tree. It's going to lead us down the wrong rabbit trail. Um, it's better to think of it this way. What Jesus is giving us here is an invitation. And it's an invitation to embark on uh, kingdom lifestyle. It's an invitation to begin to cultivate a certain kind of character in the context of a certain unique, loving community. And to begin to cultivate this character, a Christ-like character, character that, that loves. Uh, to begin to do that, you don't need to answer any of the questions, the exegetical questions. You, need to, you don't need to investigate any of the, how does it apply to this extreme circumstance or this vocation or that vocation. No, to, in fact, getting involved in those kind of things, being preoccupied with those kind of things, can easily distract you from developing the character that Jesus is calling us to distract, to, to, to cultivate. To begin to cultivate the kind of character that Jesus wants us to be growing into, you simply need to start agreeing with God that every person that you come across and every person that you think about has got 
unsurpassable worth, as is evidenced by the fact that Jesus was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for them. And you can start that right now. You don't have to, you don't have to learn anything more than that. You can have all, all questions about all sorts of things, but you can begin to do this right here, right now. The person who's, who's just sitting in front of you, the back of their head that you're looking at, or in the front row, you're looking at me, so it applies to me. But just agree with God that that person has got unsurpassable worth, and just bless them. And your highest calling as an ambassador of Christ is to reflect your agreement with God about that person in front of you by how you think about them and how you speak about them and how you speak to them and how you interact with them, how you treat them. Reflect the fact that they have unsurpassable worth. And so right now, just bless them. You don't know a thing else about them, but you know this. Jesus died for them, and that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. Or the person to your right and the person to your left, just think the thought. They are more precious than anything in the universe. They're priceless. Agree with God about that. Whatever else you see, ignore it. Just agree with God about that. You can start this with anyone at any time. Start with that ornery boss of yours in the office uh, that uh, you have such trouble getting along with. Just think of the person who irritates you. You know, before we go to, how do I love Adolf Hitler? Well, let's start with your mother-in-law, okay? Uh, That might be achievement enough. Or your son-in-law or whoever it is that's rubbing you wrong. And then, you know, that, that, that uh, blockheaded spouse that you're married to, sometimes our spouses are, are the enemy. Let's be honest about this. And, and, and just set aside, can you set aside your judgment? However, you, you feel so justified, you feel so right in your conviction that this person is a this, that, and the other thing. Wonderful. But uh, set that aside and agree with God that this person was worth Jesus dying for. And, uh, and, and start to bless him with that. Uh, start, start with that, 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 uh, uh, that, deceptive conservative commentator on Fox News or that, 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 that dishonest socialist commentator on MSNBC. And in fact, I encourage you to intentionally watch the people that bug you so you can practice this. Watch the people that drive you crazy, that you think are idiots, whatever, but practice setting aside the judgment and just blessing these people. It can be a very irritating exercise, but it's good for you. <laughs> can we accept that it's our, it, it's, it's our highest duty? Dude, just, just discipleship 101 and discipleship PhD is we, we have to agree with God that this person has unsurpassable worth, no ifs, ands, or buts. And see, every time we choose love over hatred and choose forgiveness over revenge and choose, choose love over apathy, every time we choose love over judgment, with every choice, we're forming our character a little bit more in Christ-likeness, and that's the point of the whole thing. The point of the whole thing is not to go to heaven when you die. The point of the whole thing is to be transformed into the image of Christ right here and now. And that's, got, that, that, that's the bullseye, folks. It's a reality change. We sang about it before. We're going higher and higher, from glory to glory. And that's about a character development, our character growth, because here's the thing, I know this for sure, that, that uh, my old self, the old Greg Boyd, the selfish Greg Boyd, uh, the unloving Greg Boyd, everything that's unloving about the, my old character, that's not going into the kingdom. Nothing unclean goes into the kingdom. I will be transformed before that happens. And the Lord wants to be working on that right here and right now. That's the bullseye. Um, and here's the thing. You don't have to understand a thing about the passage to do this, other than that it's a call to love. It's a, a, you don't need to figure out how this applies to this, that, and the other thing. And, and the reality is this. The vast, vast majority of what we are called to do on a day-by-day, having a loving lifestyle day-by-day, is not at all affected by how you interpret this passage in terms of whether you should be the police force or the military or are there exceptions or not. It doesn't affect that. 99% of what we need to do, we, we do apart from our differences. We have differences of agreement on this, and, 
And yet, the call is the same for 99% of, 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 of our life. But what can happen is we focus on the differences, and we never get around to doing the 99%. <laughs> let's, let's reverse that. But here's the thing. As Cedric said last week so eloquently, this is hard. It requires you dying to yourself. It's hard because it's as countercultural as anything could be. It's hard because it goes against our fallen natural instinct as much as anything could be. Um, and that's why it's so rarely tried. It's so rarely tried. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But very few people do. And Jesus knows it's hard. That's why he says, look, if you love just like everyone else does, there's nothing distinctive. You're not putting on display the, char the, father, the character of the Father when you love those who love you. Everyone does that. But when you love your enemies, well, not, 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 now you're putting on display something very unique in this world. But it's hard. Okay, it's hard for a number of reasons. I'm going to talk about two of the core issues. The two main things that I think prevent us from loving like this. Um, and, um, yeah, I... I, I it, these are two things that have to happen, I believe, if we are going to be able to love the way Christ calls us to love, to love even our life-threatening enemies. Now, the first point, I almost want to apologize for it, because if you've been here for any length of time, and by here I mean if you've been online and tuning in for any length of time, you've probably heard me touch on this, because this is, this is basically the only sermon I've got. All my sermons come, come down to this. Because I think this is, you talk about core issue, this is as core as an issue can get. It's foundational to everything. What I'm talking about is this. Number one, we have to get all of the fullness of our life from Christ. I say that all the time around here because everything hangs on this. Jesus says in, in, in John 10 that he goes, you know, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all the thief does. It's talking about Satan. But I've come, and this is the only thing he comes to do, is to give life. He comes that we might have life and live it to the full, life abundantly. It's God's will for us to be fully alive. He, he created us to be fully alive, fully awake. And, and, and the only way we can become fully alive is when we are getting all of our core needs, our, our, our thirst for life from God. So the psalmist says this in Psalm 42. He says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You're hungry for life. Everyone's hungry for life at the core of their being. But whether they know it or not, what they're really hungry for is their creator, God created us with these inner needs that only the Creator can, can meet. Uh, Kevin has broken down these core needs into in, uh, a couple categories. I'll just run through them really quick. At, at the core of our being, every human being has got a need for, uh, to feel unconditional worth or inherent worth. That you're valued. You've got, you've got inherent worth. Everyone has a longing to belong, to feel like they're not alone. Everyone has a longing to have a sense of purpose and a sense of significance, that your life counts. That's not a carnal thing that you, you want your life to count. That's an that's a inbuilt God thing. Everyone wants to uh, feel their free agency or their personhood, to, to not feel like they're a doormat or an extension of someone else. You've you got your own agency. You make your own choices. Everyone uh, has a sense of justice and fairness and wants to be treated fairly. Everyone has a need for security, security in, in, in belonging and security in having this worth. And finally, everybody has a longing for hope. And the longings that we have here, it's good when other human beings can, can, can mirror God's uh, love for us to, to help meet those needs. But the needs go outrun anything that any person or any group of people can possibly meet in this world. The hunger is there for God. Only God can give us unconditional worth, unconditional purpose, unconditional security, unconditional hope. And to the degree that those inner needs are met, to the degree that I really feel worthwhile, I feel significant, I feel like I'm a real person— that's what it means to be, feel fully alive. 
to be fully awake, to be fully present. The inner needs are being met out of your love for God. He, he pours his love into us. So it looks like this. Uh, here's a diagram. God created us with this God-shaped vacuum. Can put that diagram up there? With this God-shaped vacuum. Uh, and, and he did that on purpose. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's intended to be a homing device to drive us to God. If we follow our hunger, it will lead us to God. God's a God who loves to pour himself out into others, and so he creates beings like us who desperately need him to pour himself out for us. It's supposed to work that way. And then diagram number two, God wants to do this so that he fills us with his love, he meets our innermost needs, and then we overflow with love back to God, to ourselves, to other people, and to the earth and the animal kingdom. And see, in this way, now the whole creation is brought into the beautiful dance of the triune God, which is a dance that will be going on throughout all eternity. It all depends on our getting all of our worth, significance, a core need for that, from our relationship with our Creator. Because you can't overflow with something that you don't have. But see, if we're not getting our life from Christ, our worth, our significance, uh, well then we have to get it from some other source. Because these needs are non-negotiable. They do not go away. And if, if, if they're not being met in one way, we will invariably try to meet them in some other way. And so if, if, if I'm not feeling significant because Jesus died for me, if, that doesn't, if that's not doing it for me, well, then i got to feel significant because, well, maybe I can press you. Maybe I can get you to clap for me. Maybe I can get you to think I'm funny. Maybe I can get you to think I'm holy. Maybe I can get you to think I'm smart. Whatever. Or you might grab onto money. Maybe if you get enough money, you'll feel like you're fully alive. Or maybe if you get enough popularity or you get enough power or status, you get enough respect, well, then you'll feel fully alive. Maybe if you just get people to acknowledge how pretty you are or how smart you are or your sex appeal or your, your, your talent at sports or talent at singing or talent at anything. Or if you're really desperate, be some worth, maybe you'll grab onto your race. That will make you significant. Or your nationality, that will make you significant. Or your religion or your gang or Whatever. Anything can become an idol for us. We grab onto it to, feel, to, to make our life feel like it's worth living. Try to feel fully alive. These are all idols. An idol is anything that plays a role that only God can play, or only God should play. Whenever we try to use anything to meet a need that only God can meet, we have an idol on our hand. And these idols, they never satisfy. They can taste good in the moment, if you're lucky enough to acquire them. Uh, they, they, they taste good in the moment but they never satisfy in the long run. In fact, they can start to give you a stomachache because it's false food. It's not stuff you're ever supposed to be eating uh, to try to meet the core needs in your life. They don't satisfy, but see, as long as we're not getting our life from Christ, we can't help ourselves. We're addicted. So then what happens is this world becomes a feeding frenzy of idols. Everyone's trying to get a morsel of worth by what they can achieve or what they can accomplish or who they can impress, but it turns into a competition. And so there's a feeding frenzy. There's only so much, you know, only one of us can be the best looking. Only one of us can be the smartest. Only one of us can be the brightest and whatnot. And so we play this king of the hill game with idols. And see, everything that's unloving about this world is in, in the end a result of this competition. This competition. It's what drives the world. It's what creates empires. People need to conquer or make a name for themselves or whatever. It's what, make, what makes the world go wrong, and that's why there's so much violence in this world. As we're in this feeding frenzy competition for idle gain, what happens is someone has a little advantage over others, so they get to be kind of towards the top. They get, they get the power. They get the recognition. And then they create little hierarchies. They become the value assigners, and they start to assign value to people based on their ability to do this, or their look at this, or their culture this, or their religion this, or what have you. 
So we have a world full of these hierarchies, value-laden hierarchies, where some are ranked above others and some are privileged above others. And there are the haves and the have-nots. And, 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 and it's these hierarchies that divide us into us and them, the hierarchies that create all this violence and all the judgments that we have. Hierarchies are always the antithesis of the kingdom. Uh, but that's what you get when you enter into this, this, this competition game. It's uh, all the violence in this world, all that's unloving in this world, all the hatred and hostility is a result of this competition for, for idols. It is a product of the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and this is how he does it. At least this is one of the main ways he does it. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, this competition isn't the, it's not just that it's, it keeps the world from being loving, but we have to admit that everything that's unloving in us is a result of our participating in this competition. If I'm unable to love the way Christ calls me to love, I, I know that it's because I'm, I'm, whether I can immediately identify it or not, it's because I'm walking around with a hungry heart. I'm walking around trying to get my needs met. I'm walking around trying to get worth, so I'm not, so I'm not getting filled with God's unconditional and indiscriminating love. And if I'm not being filled with God's unconditional and indiscriminating love to meet my innermost needs, well then I can't be giving God's indiscriminating uh, love to others. I'm too busy meeting my own needs. We're not receiving it. We can't be overflowing with it. So it comes down to this, folks. Um, we need to, and I say this all the time, but it's, it bears repeating. And I, I don't apologize for this. Uh, this is the kind of thing we need to repeat all the time. We all have to create time Carve out time where we spend just basking in God's love. We carve out time where we do what God saved us to do, and that's to hang out with him. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't save us because we are going to be so efficient. He saved us because he wants to, to be with us, to be together. And, and, and there needs to be time where we just you know, love on God and let God love on us. Enjoy God enjoying you. Just, just be together as you are. Let God love you as you are, and that's the very thing that will grow you to be more than you currently are. But it means that there has to be time where you're just basking in that love. Just drink deep from the wellspring of God's infinite love. Sometimes you, you have this, this, this uh, silly sort of competition in, in Christian circles where you find throughout church history there's been those who, who emphasize piety, personal piety, and those who, who emphasize social activism. And they tend to judge each other. All those social activists, they're a bunch of good, do-gooders, but they don't have a real relationship with Christ. All those pious people, oh, they're always praying, but they never actually do anything in the world. They kind of judge each other, but the truth is we, both are absolutely necessary. But see, the piety, that relationship with God, that's what fuels the activism. I want us to be activists. I want us to be out there doing things. I want us to be changing the world. But we do it not because we want to try to get some righteousness or recognition or anything. We do it out of the fullness of what we've already got. We've already got, he's already given us everything. Now we express it. Like being involved in, in ministry. So, so spend time with that. Now, people connect with God in different ways, and, and, and we're all very different, and you've got to kind of find where it works for you, and, and that will evolve, you know? And so you have to always be kind of experimenting with this. But Paul gives us, I'll just say a word about this. Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us a, a way of connecting with God that, that I have found and many have found to be extremely helpful. Um, and, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 3. And I'm not going to go there now. I don't have time. But I'll just tell you this. You can look it up on your own. But in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about this veil that unbelievers have over their mind. In fact, he says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that this God, the God of this age has, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, this is 1, 2 Corinthians 3.15, that the Holy Spirit removes that veil in the mind, what we call our imagination. So now Paul says, with the Spirit of the Lord is there's freedom. He's talking about a freedom to see something that we couldn't see before. 
And then he says in verse 18, so because we're free, we all with unveiled faces, talking about now the, the, the mind, seeing with the mind's eye, we all with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of God uh, in the face of Jesus Christ as through a mirror or as through a darkened window. Uh, he's referring to the fact that we don't, we're not seeing you know, face to face yet. This is seeing that's mediated through our imagination. But it is real seeing. It's, real, it's still real. It's just mediated. And then he says, as we sang earlier, as we behold that glory, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Hallelujah. Glory to glory to glory to glory. It's what you behold that, that determines what you become. As we see his beauty, we take on that beauty. As we, as we experience his love, we take on that love. It's the key to transformation. It's not about trying hard on your own. It's about sitting in the presence of, 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 of Jesus, like, like, like Mary, and, and just basking in his love. Uh, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So I encourage folks to, to do that. Just, and to have times where you surrender your imagination to the Holy Spirit. In the church tradition, this was called the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary. And, and this is where we encounter the things of God, where they become tangible, concrete, incarnational, and experiential. And that's where they are transformative. And just let God, let the love of God revealed on Calvary, just uh, meet those innermost needs that you have. Hear Jesus say to you all the things he says about you in Scripture, but hear him and see him and sense him as he's using your name, as he's looking into your eyes. And let him love the fear right out of you. Let him love that sin right out of you. Let him love that addiction right out of you. Let, let, let him love that bondage right out of you. Just All the insecurities, whatever it is, the, the, the love of God casts out that fear. But that means you have to sit in the presence of his love. I have a book on this if you want to find out more about it. It's called Seeing is Believing. The power of imaginative prayer. So number one, we need to get all of our life from Christ. Number two, it's so important. We, I don't think we'll love like Christ wants us to love unless we remember this. That your enemy is just another hungry human. Whoever your enemy is, they're just another hungry human. We're all made in the image of God, and that's why we all at our heart have the same core desires. Every human being has the same core desires. Now, it's not always obvious. It's not always apparent. Because cultures differ greatly in terms of the idols they tend to chase. And individuals and, and cultures can differ greatly in how they express these core needs. So it, it, it can be so different that it, it doesn't even seem like their core needs are, are, are there. Then on top of that, because we live in this feeding frenzy world, uh, where there's winners and losers, along the lines, most people at some point start believing some lies. Along, along the, lie, the line as they're being raised, at some point, people get hurt, they get wounded, they get scarred. And those scars and those wounds can jade their perception of what their inner needs are and can really jade their understanding of, of the right way to meet those needs. And some lost souls can get so far off track that they just sink into diabolical darkness. Maybe engage in absolutely unthinkable, heinous things. But see, while the world may look at a person like this and judge them based on, the, uh, on their appearance and what they've done, we are to be the people who remember that no one is reduced down to what they have done. No one can be reduced down to just how they appear. We look on the outside of people, uh, it says in Scripture, but, but God sees the innermost person, and he tells us a little bit about that innermost person. And you know what? At the heart of that innermost person, as diabolical as they may appear on the, on, on the surface, they're just like you. They're just trying to meet the same needs that you're trying to meet. They maybe don't know it. But they are. They're striving for that. And we're to be the people that remember that. And remembering our common humanity, see, that should move us towards compassion rather than judgment. Now, maybe someone's here thinking, well, wait, wait, wait now. Um, 
You know, people do, we have free will, Greg, you always teach that, and people are responsible for what they do, and, and people have to be held accountable, and, 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 and so the, 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 there's a place for judgment. Society has to hold people accountable, and that's true. That's true. And if you're a lawyer, and if you're a judge, or maybe if you have to serve on a jury, you have to temporary, temporarily take on that role, where your job is to figure out how responsible is this person for what they have done. Try to decide, to what degree did, is this person just a, an extension of the broken world? He inherited a broken world, or to what degree did they, did they choose, make choices that brought him here? To what degree is this the result of things done to the person versus things that the person himself has done? Good luck on deciding that. Um, and for, so, for society reasons, you have to. And some people just need to be put in prison. You have to protect society from certain people. I got that. But see, as a kingdom person, you've got to know that you, you can play that role temporarily, but, but you, you take that hat off as soon as that role is done. Because as a kingdom person, you know that all judgment is to be left to God. Hallelujah. All judgment. Leave all vengeance to God. It all belongs to him. The New Testament's explicit on this over and over again. Uh, and it's only when we leave all judgment to God that we can love the way God calls us to love. The truth is, you can't know the degree to which any person is the result of their own decisions versus what's been done to them. It's, it's beyond human knowledge. Philosophers have tried, neuroscientists have tried, social scientists have tried, geneticists have tried to parse out to what degree are we free, to what degree are we conditioned by just the things that come at us. But it's, it's all messed together. We can't know that. Not in any definitive way. But here's the good news. You don't need to know that. In fact, that's none of your business. <laughs> that's none of your business. That's God's business. That's why we leave all judgment to God. Our job is to love, that period, full stop. It's not hard to understand. Our business is to, to, to love them the way Christ has loved us and gave his life for us, and to look at them with eyes of compassion. We don't know the degree to which they're responsible, but we leave that to God, and so we should be looking at them with compassion and more on the side of their victims than that they are uh, having, having chosen this. Here is, Jesus sets a perfect example for us, what I think our attitude should be towards everybody, but uh, especially towards our enemy. Uh, and, and he gives us this example, of course, on the cross. When he says this, it's one of his last words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Proof of that is that the creator of the universe is three feet above the head of these guards, and all he can think about is gambling for his clothes. <laughs> uh, what's wrong with this picture? They don't know what they're doing. So here Jesus is, he's been tortured in unthinkable ways. He's crucified. He's in the process of suffocating because that's how you died on the cross. You had to pull yourself up to get some air, but in time, you, just, you get too weak and you can't do it anymore, so you suffocate. Um, and yet, in that situation, he still has the presence of mind to, ex to express God's love for his enemies. And he expresses his love for his enemies, the ones who are crucifying him and torturing him. He expresses that love by asking the Father to forgive them. So Jesus not only leaves all judgment to the Father, but having done that, he asks the Father not to judge them. See, I just think, don't hold him to that debt, Father. Release him from that. That, I submit to you, is the attitude that we should adopt towards all enemies. Not only if we refrain from judging them, but we leave all judgment to God. But see, you could leave all judgment to God while still hoping that they really get it. Okay, God will get it. Give it to them. Uh -huh, yeah. They're going to get it. And I, that's understandable. That's understandable, but that's not a stopping point. Uh, your heart is really transformed into Christ-likeness when you genuinely 
want to see them restored. It doesn't mean that you want to wave aside all social consequences. Some people need to go to prison. And sometimes you have to learn from the consequences they experience. So it's not about that. Like, you know, get everyone off the hook. But it means that your, your hope for them is that judgment isn't the last word. You hope that ultimately there will be restoration. And amen. Because that's what the Father did with you. <laughs> he didn't let judgment be the last word. He's, he's in the process of restoring us. Uh, judgment should not have, have, have the last word. It's a hope to see them being reconciled to the Father and maybe eventually being reconciled to you. But see, there's no magic wand that says, okay, just be done with that. Okay, just, you know, that, that abuser, you just kind of wave the wand. And, okay, now I love them. No. Um, this is the thing that, that we, as a character, we've got to grow into. Um, and, and there's sometimes really hard work that needs to be done before a person's ready to, to, to talk about reconciliation uh, and restoration. Uh, There's going to be a lot of work to be done just to, to get a person to get over the anger that they understandably have over what was done to them. So I don't mean to make this a Pollyanna kind of thing, but this is, it's, it's, not, it's not a rule that, that we, we that study and try to get around and find loopholes. It's an invitation to a way of life, getting on a, a kingdom road that leads to, 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 getting off the road that leads to Gehenna and ruin, destruction, and getting on that road that leads to eternal life. And that's about a relationship with Jesus Christ and the transforming power it has in our life. No magic wand here, folks. But um, that's the, the, the goal we have to be pursuing. Now, now, one final word here, and that's, it sometimes helps people, in fact, it often helps people to, when you're dealing with a person that is really difficult to love, and maybe they're even in the, the diabolical darkness, um, but it can help to remember that everyone's got a prequel. Everyone's got a prequel. Uh, I don't usually like sequels in movies, but I always like prequels. We find out... What, how'd the person get to be this way? Like, what made the wicked witch so, so wicked? How did she get that way? What made her so ugly? Um, no one just wakes up one day and says, hey, I think I'll be a real mean, nasty witch and then go after little dogs. You're a little dog too. Ah! As a kid, I was just terrified of her. Man, she scared me to death. But then, you know, they have this play called Wicked and it, it shows the backstory. And there's a reason why she got that way. And I don't want to, you know, ruin it, but it has something that, it's not easy being green. I'll just say that, right? It's not easy being green. So there's, things happened that turned her into this, 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 this monster. And once you, once you see the backstory, you're moved with compassion towards them. Or, or Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, how did he get to be such a miser and such a miserable person? Well, if you knew the backstory and the orphanage and all the rest, and then you move towards compassion. Everyone's got a back. I, I, I first came upon this about 20-some years ago when uh, we had, in the Twin Cities here, there's a, a little boy who was murdered. He was two or three years old. And, and the autopsy revealed that this little kid had been, this wasn't the first time that he was beat up. He had been beat up. He had abuse his whole life. He was born into a hell from which he could not get out of. And the guy who killed him was the, the boyfriend of this mother. And watching this on the news, you know, I... I, I I have a real trigger when it comes to kids being abused and suffering. And so I'm just enraged, you know, and, and I'd want to see that guy frying in hell. I just like, no one should ever do that to a kid. And I just, kind of a righteous indignation. That night I was praying, and, and as I was praying, I got this picture in my head of, of a little boy in a closet, and, and his face was, was beaten, and, and he was crying. He was crying more because he was in the dark, and he was afraid of the dark than he was out of the pain that he was in. But he was begging his father to let him out of the closet. I saw this little boy say, please, daddy, I'll be good. I promise I'll be good. And, um, uh, and then I felt moved to pray for this little kid. 
which confused me because in my theology, I, we don't pray for the dead. Once a person is dead, I turn them over to the Lord. And some of you come from different traditions, and that's, that's fine. But, but I, 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 in my belief, that at that point, they belong to God, and, and our job is just to entrust them to the Lord. So I'm being asked to pray for this, this kid, but the kid's already dead. And so I was really confused. I was like, why would you want me to pray for a boy who's already dead? And the word I got back was that this, this isn't the boy who's, who got killed. This is the man who killed the boy. And, um, yeah, you talk about a reframe. Uh, and, it, it, you know, I don't know if that was a word of knowledge, that that was actually happening, or maybe that was just a representation of the kind of things that this guy must have went through. But I know this. He, he, was a, he was born a kid like everybody else. He's got the same needs as everybody else. He wanted to be a baseball star at some point, or a rock star, or wanted to impress the girls with his singing ability. He wanted what the stuff that little boys want. What happened to him? What turned him into a monster? I don't know. But no one just chooses that. No, maybe he made some jaded choices, and God will take care of that. God knows he can separate that. I can't. So my, all right, my attitude has got to be, Father, forgive him. He didn't know what he was doing. He, he went on this track, and he got lost. And um, he, that guy would have to have social consequences for what he did. There needs to be that. But my heart is that someday I hope to see him restored. I hope to see him healthy. I hope to see him reconciled with this boy and reconciled with his God and reconciled with others. That is the heart that, that we need to be pursuing. Right? Everyone's got a prequel. And so when you're dealing with your ornery boss or, or the terrible neighbor or whoever it is that is the current enemy, uh, try to imagine the prequel. And, 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 and try to view them with eyes of compassion. Um, it helps you then to get out of the judgment. The judgments are always so finely tuned focused. In fact, our amygdala is designed to operate this way. When, when there's something that we're, we're judging or something that threatens us, something we don't like, we zero in on it. We don't think about the prequel or the sequel or anything. We just, you are a this, a despicable human being. I encourage us to zoom out. And everyone's got a prequel. And always remember that however things appear, God sees the inner heart, and God thought this person was worth dying for, and your most fundamental job as a kingdom disciple is to agree with God about that and to reflect that agreement by how you respond to them. However nasty they respond to you, you respond the opposite because you're a kingdom person, and you're not defined by the person in front of you. You're defined by your Lord God Almighty. Amen, amen. Would you stand? Uh, uh, we, we have uh, 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 some prayer teams available. If there's any kind of prayer that you could use, I encourage you to... Uh, get on the line, or if you want, if you're in the building here, you can come up uh, uh, up front here and pray with the folks that are here. Don't carry that burden uh, uh, out alone. Uh, we've got the Muse uh, cast on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock where they go deeper with the sermon. We also got gathering groups, and I encourage folks to be getting in those gathering groups. Get to meet other people and, uh, and go deeper with the sermon in that way. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you just for this body of people who are in the building here and who are watching online uh, for what you're doing here at Woodland Hills Church. I, I thank you for it, and I Thank you for this call that we are learning to love together. Help us, God, to see this and live in this as the most important thing. Uh, to take this seriously day in and day out. To love the people around us in all the little ways that we can. Forgive us when we fail to do that. Holy Spirit, remind us, point us out when we fail to do that so we can become more authentic, fully committed, devoted followers of Jesus who seek first the kingdom of God in all things. And God's, all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.